Welcome to CruxCast. Whether you're in your car, at work, or at home, we hope you enjoy this interview. And if you do, you can find more like it on cruxinvestor.com. So please subscribe. Today we're speaking with Paul Woolwork, who's the General Manager for Marketing and Product Development at Neometals. Now, Neometals is a company we were first introduced to last year. We're very impressed with their business model as a project developer. They've returned some $45 million to shareholders over a four-year period on their Mount Marion project. Now they're hoping to replicate the same model on their battery recycling and titanium project Barambi in Western Australia. Anyway, enjoy the podcast. Good morning, Paul. How are you, sir? I'm well, Matt. How are you? Not too bad. I see you've picked up a bit of sun there at the weekend, have you? Yes, it was nice and sunny here in Perth on the weekend. Very jealous. At this time of year is often the case. Very jealous, very jealous. Paul, you are the General Manager for Marketing and Product Development for Neo Metals. But today, you're going to teach us about the world of titanium. Because uh, I don't have to say, right. apart, apart from a, a song, I don't know too much about it. So <laughs> if you don't mind, first of all, why don't you, why don't you sort of help people understand what titanium is and, and, the, and what it covers, first of all, and then we'll talk about, I think, the demand and supply side of things. Well, when you talk about the titanium industry, you're commonly talking about three key industries. Titanium dioxide pigment, which is the largest consumer of titanium minerals and accounts for about 90% of demand for titanium feedstocks. You have the titanium metal sector, which is basically that sector that um, produces titanium metal for a host of applications, primarily in aerospace and industrial applications. And then there's the welding industry, where titanium is used as a flux in welding electrodes. So they're the three main industries, the most important of which is TiO2 from a volume perspective, because that consumes by far and away the majority of the raw materials consumed by the industries. Right, so that's interesting because mo mo most people think of it as a hard, well, one of the hardest substances on earth rather than pigments, which is yes, huge. So, I mean, give us an example of sort of the applications of some of the, the pigments, again, just so people understand the context. Okay, well, titanium dioxide pigment is a white pigment, and it's used in paints, it's used in plastics, it's used in textiles. So where you need a white pigment, TiO2 is the pigment of choice. And that's because of its physical properties. It has a very high refractive index, much higher than most other pigments. And so it's very good at scattering light, and so it gives you good uh, opacity. It, uh, it's a product that is, um, what's the word? It's, it's non-injurious. Um, so it's something that can be put into foodstuffs and cosmetics. Um, and it's a durable material. And it, it imparts durability to a lot of the pigments and coatings uh, that use TiO2. So, but what you're looking for basically is, is brightness, opacity and you know the ability to provide um, a good color in a pigment or in a paint and there's basically two types of um, TiO2 pigment there's different crystal structures there's the rutile crystal structure there's the anatase crystal structure in theory these are interchangeable anatase is more suited to some applications like for example in textiles and, and cosmetics Rutile is more suitable in other applications where 
you know, you have a requirement for high thermal stability. And I think the rutile TiO2 pigments are consumed primarily in industrial and automotive applications, but of course, across a wide range of pigment applications. Okay, and are there different types of grades of titanium? Like, is one ore better than another? I know you end up with a concentrate or an intermediate, but in terms of the ore bodies themselves, it just comes back to, you know, you know grade, etc. But is there sort of quality issues? Yes, well, there are a few different titanium minerals that are used as feedstock in the titanium industry. And the most abundant of these is ilmenite, which is a titanium iron oxide mineral. And there's probably about 13 to 14 million tonnes a year of this material mined annually. And roughly half of that goes directly into pigment processing. Um, the other half gets beneficiated into higher grade, higher value TiO2 feedstocks. Now, I'll come to those in a minute, but aside from ilmenite, there's also rutile, which is a high value TiO2 mineral, um, up around 90% or 95% TiO2. And this is um, the most valuable of the TiO2 feedstocks because it has relatively low levels of impurities and it's a reasonably pure product for the, you know, the consumer to purchase. There's also an intermediate product, which is something between ilmenite and rutile, and that's with coxine. And this is basically also an iron titanium oxide, but with progressively lower levels of iron, which have been leached from this material over time in situ, and you end up with a product that could have a TiO2 content somewhere between, between 70 and 90%, for example. So you've got ilmenite at the bottom end of the spectrum with TiO2 nominally 50%, but anywhere in the range of 45 to 65%. You've got the coxine, which sits between about 70 and 90%, and then you've got rutile, which sits at the high end at 95%. And they're the natural titanium minerals that are commonly mined and, and processed. Right. Okay. The beneficiating <clears throat> products include titanium slag and synthetic rutile, and also a product called upgraded slag, which is something that Rio Tinto produces, which has a TiO2 content quite close to rutile. And that's probably the most, that's the second most valuable of the TiO2 feedstock. And when it comes to titanium slag, you basically produce two types. You produce a sulfate slag and a chloride slag. And the naming convention comes from the end use. In other words, if that slag is consumed in the sulfate root process for pigment production, it's a sulfate slag. If that slag is consumed in the chloride root process for pigment production, it's a chloride slag. So you tend to talk in terms of chloride feedstock, sulfate feedstock, to service those two types of processes. Okay, and what what does the market prefer? You, you kind of you, you tell us right, rutile, then the coxine, and then ilmenite in terms of order preference with regards to the two different types of slag, sulfite and chloride. You know, is there any preference for the, in the market for either of those, or are they treated exactly the same? Well, the the preference depends firstly on the on the process itself. Um, the, the companies that are using chloride technology, except for the largest company, Camours, like to buy chloride slag, rutile and synthetic rutile. Um, the sulfate pigment producers quite commonly will buy ilmenite, especially in China, or they'll buy sulfate slag. And their preference has to do with their ability to tolerate impurities and you know, the actual 
dynamics of their particular operation. Uh, the, the pigment companies, for example, do, do like to buy the beneficiated products because they're higher TiO2, which enables them to produce more product for a given raw material input. It can reduce their reagent consumption. It can reduce their requirement for storage. It can reduce their waste and byproduct production. So there are benefits and therefore the beneficiated and higher value TiO2 minerals um, uh, achieve a price premium per unit TiO2 compared to ilmenite, which is at the bottom of the tree. Can you give us a sense of the size of the market today and what it's projected to do? And I know when I look in your um, the Neo Metals uh, PowerPoint slide, you know, there's as with all of these things, it's, we're, we're, we're running out, it, it says. It, they, they, these, these diagrams always do. So can you give me an idea of you know, who's, who's producing today, at what levels, what the, what the, you know, the, demand, what the um, demand side of things tells us? Okay. When, when you talk about supply and demand of titanium minerals, you talk in terms of TiO2 units. And okay. it's just a way of standardizing the quantities. So, for example, if you've got a 50% TiO2 ilmenite, you need two tonnes of ilmenite to produce one TiO2 unit effectively. Okay. Whereas if you've got a tonne of rutile, which is 95% TiO2, you need a little more than a tonne of rutile for one TiO2 unit. Okay. Collectively, the titanium industry consumes around 7.5 million TiO2 units annually. So that's the size of the market. Um, as feedstocks, the value of these materials would be of the order of six or seven billion dollars annually. Um, once you've converted those materials to pigments, the value of that sector would be of the order of 15 to 20 billion dollars, depending on market pricing. Um, and then, of course, the highest value titanium sector is the titanium metal sector, where you may be paying ten dollars a kilogram for titanium sponge and even higher prices for um, milled or fabricated products. Give me, uh, so I'm, I'm going to guess that the main uh, consumer of TiO2 is going to be China in terms of production of all the things that it produces. Is, would I be correct? You, you are correct. China has grown quite rapidly in the last decade or more to become the world's largest producer and consumer of TiO2 pigment. I think it probably consumes about 40% of TiO2 pigment globally. Um, the other large markets, of course, are North America and Europe, where the per capita, per capita consumption of pigment is higher. In the advanced economies of North America and Europe, you're consuming close to three kilograms of pigment annually per person. In China, that level is much lower of the order of one kilogram per person, but that level has increased significantly in recent years. So the consumption of pigment really is a function of, I guess, um, affluence or GDP, GDP per capita. And so at some point you do reach a saturation point for um, pigment consumption, but China presumably hasn't reached that level yet, given their consumptions much lower than than these other advanced economies. That's interesting. So, so China is a significant, 40% is significant, but it's nothing compared to, say, rare earths, which is, you know, up around, the, you know, 90%. No. Um, so they're not necessarily controlling the pricing in the, in the market at the moment. So maybe we should get, there's a, a good time to get on to, into, um, on, on the supply side of things and try and understand 
where the big producers of titanium are and then we can maybe merge the supply demand conversation together at that point. So, so I know you've got a big project and we will talk about it in, in a second, but wh where does most of the titanium supply come from? Basically, there's there's two types of titanium mineral deposit. There's an alluvial sand, if you like, and that's a heavy mineral sand deposit. And you also have a hard rock mineral, which is hard rock ilmenite primarily. Now, the mineral sand deposits are mined around the world in in mostly in coastal regions of Australia, India, some of the eastern and southern and even western African countries. Um, and that's probably where most of the, the, the heavy mineral sand is coming from. The hard rock is mined in places like China, Russia, the Ukraine and Norway. And um, these are all um, relatively long term markets that you know, for example, in Western Australia, where I am, um, you know, mineral sands have been mined probably since the late 50s here. So that's more than 60 years of operation now, nearly 70. Um, and so they're the two different types of, of mineralization that are commonly exploited. And it is a global industry. You know, you've got producers in all parts of the world. Um, as you, you also have pigment producers all over the world. Um, the largest producers are in North America and Europe. China is rapidly growing in terms of its stature in the pigment industry and Lomond Billions is now the largest producer in China, which is of a scale now, which is rivaling some of the larger Western producers. And so, you know, that industry is maturing quite rapidly. It's also moving away from sulfate processing to chloride processing, which is the more modern technology. It uses, it produces less, less byproduct and waste, and hence, um, you know, is probably a desired position as far as a lot of the Chinese pigment companies are concerned. Okay, that's, that's interesting. So in terms of the market, you're saying it's a fairly global um, production supply um, commodity. It, it, it's readily available. And if someone wanted to get into production, is that are there any barriers to people getting into production? Like, could new entrants come into market and kind of help with this, yeah. you know, supply demand gap? The barriers relate to the quality of your bodies. I think, right. you know, uh, beneficiating ilmenite or mining heavy mineral sands is not that complicated, um, and so. In terms of mining operations, there's nothing unusual about them. And, and for example, in the case of heavy mineral sand deposits where there's no drilling and blasting required, where you simply have a, a free digging material, you know, mining's quite simple. Um, so uh, the real barriers to entry relate to the quality of your body. And, you know, where you have valuable byproduct credits. Uh, that contributes to the profitability and likelihood of developing a new resource. And when I'm talking about byproduct credits, I'm talking about zircon, for example, which is not used in the titanium minerals industry. It's mostly used in ceramics, but that's a valuable co-product, if you like, from a, a heavy mineral sand mining operation. In case of the hard rock mining operations, um, if you can also extract vanadium, which is commonly associated with these deposits, that's another valuable co-product. And this is what we have at Barambi in Western Australia. 
which is a, a second um, valuable metal in your body that we'll be looking to exploit in due course. Let's come back to what you just said. So in terms of barriers, uh, I'm trying to understand the barriers because if you look at things like industries like lithium, it's readily available everywhere and it's a question of do you have the technical know-how to uh, get that you know, asset in, into production. It's, it's again, it's not hard. You've got your brines and your hard rocks, kind of like this, um, but it, it's not hard. So the barriers are low. The problem in that market is the supply. So for titanium, the, you're saying technically it's not difficult. Where where do the barriers come in? Uh, so technically getting it out of the ground is not difficult, but do the problems come later on in terms of how you get your, cons get your concentrate, how you um, you know, develop the, the chemicals, etc. So, what's stopping people coming yeah. piling into the space? Yeah, well, I think what stops people piling into the space is, um, you know, the strength of some of the main producers who have quite dominant market positions and some pricing power in that respect. Um, and you, even though titanium is one of the most abundant elements in the Earth's crust, I think it ranks number nine it's not necessarily available in deposits that are commercially um, useful. Um, so you need to have elevated concentrations of these titanium minerals in the deposit to make them valuable and to, to be able to develop them. And, um, you know, the industry overall is growing at roughly GDP rates of the order of 2.5% per annum. So you're not seeing very rapid growth like we're seeing in the lithium industry. We're seeing a fairly mature industry that's growing steadily over time along with GDP. Um, so in that respect, the companies that are incumbent in the industry can plan well ahead and they, you know, they position themselves well, um, you know, to meet growing demand or future demand where that becomes a challenge and where there's an opportunity for new market entrants is the traditional mining companies with the exception of some of the hard rock guys are now finding it harder and harder to find good high quality ore bodies that they can continue to extend their mining life and operations with and so the industry i think is faced in the future with higher cost lower grade ore bodies going forward and that's where efficiency of operation becomes very important the location of the ore body becomes very important and the industry is more and more looking to probably non-traditional types of ore bodies for titanium molecules in the future and this is probably our situation at Barambi where we have a hard rock deposit most of the mining in, in most of the titanium minerals mining in Australia is actually heavy mineral sand. So this is something a little unique for Australia. Um, but this project, because of its very high titanium values, has potential and is probably maybe one of the first of this style of ore body that will be exploited in Australia to recover the minerals that have traditionally been won quite freely from the heavy mineral sand deposits. Okay, um, we'll talk about it in a second. But I, I guess that what I'm trying to help uh, myself understand and the viewers understand is, you know, what are the types of companies you should back? Because if I look at, again, another another 
example, uranium space. When the, when the last cycle happened, that, you know, we started with 50 uranium companies. By the peak of that cycle, there were 500 uh, companies. And most of them didn't know what they're doing, but they, you put the word uranium you know, in front of your project and you were going to get funded. And it's those companies which lost investors a lot of money because they had no idea how to get into production. They didn't understand the how to get in, fit into the chain, the supply chain, nor indeed, you know, monetize or create value. And I'm, that's why I'm saying, you know, if this is quite a you know, prev, prevalent commodity, titanium is, you know, say, ninth on the list, um, why aren't there more people sort of piling into what seems to be, you know, really steadily growing space? And, you know, what are there? There must be not only economic barriers, but technical barriers further down the line in terms of how you put a project together. I, I, the kind of project was going to make people money. That, that, that's yes. that's yes. the question I'm trying, trying to answer. Yes. So let, I guess now would be the time to talk about Barambi and understand how yes. you're piecing this together. Because again, I've, I've had a couple of conversations with Jeremy and, and Chris, and I, I like the project developer model. And, and, and you know, you guys are sitting on a lot of cash, you've got a lot of optionality, but the model of you know, getting an asset to a point where you bring in strategic partners with cash and capital interests me. Is that what you're doing at Barambi? Yes. Well, what we're doing at Barambi is we, we've got an ore body that is a little atypical in Australia. Mm. Um, and so what we're having to demonstrate to the market is that this ore body is valuable because you can recover saleable products from it and um, you can develop a market for these products. Now, what we've looked at is a couple of different development pathways, and we've piloted these pathways um, here in Australia and in China to determine which is the best way forward. Now, what we're able to do, we're able to go down a pyrometallurgical route where you, you mine the ore, and maybe you roast the ore, you, you perform a reduction roast to produce a certain quality of mineral, that then has a that then you can sell. What we've also looked at is a hydrometallurgical route, which enables us to recover not just the titanium, but the vanadium as well. The pyrometallurgical route can do that as well, and there's different ways you can go with these these materials. But what we've wanted to do is demonstrate to the market that yes, our ore body is a little unusual in Australia, but in actual fact, here's the pathway to development. Here's how you can do it. And now we're talking to um, partners about developing this ore body. And we're still in the process now of putting together a demonstration plant up in China for the purpose of proving not just the technical viability, but the commercial viability of these processing routes. Let's bring this back for people who haven't read up as much as I have on, on this. So you've got an ore body in Western Australia, this, this to titanium ore body called Barambi. How much have you spent on it to date? What have you done and what do you know about what you've got today? I think all up we've spelt about we've spent about thirty million dollars on the project mm -hmm. um, on exploration and feasibility studies and metallurgical development work. Over and what over what period? Oh this is over probably a decade or two. I joined the company a couple of years ago, and I know there's a history of project evaluation. And right. with the acquisition of the project, the drilling that we've done, the metallurgical assessment work that we've done, we've probably spent about $30 million. 
we've drilled extensively and that's where there's a large component of the cost we've drilled 55,000 meters of drill wow. hole on that project so it's very well defined now it's actually a very big deposit and it's open that at depth um, so we think there's a very large resource there. Have you got an idea of the scale of that project, of the grades? I mean, what, what do you know with 55,000 you know, meters? That's a lot of data. Yeah, the, the ore body that we've identified is about 11 kilometers in length. Um, we believe it's about four kilometers deep. Um, it's, it's large. And what we've identified is a uh, uh, a global resource of about 280 million tonnes. Now, there are high-grade areas to this global resource that I think that we would look to develop in the first instance. In what we call the eastern zone, there's about 55 million tonnes of high-grade titanium mineralisation, and that's around 21% TiO2. There's also some vanadium in what we call the central bands, there's another 65 million tonnes, which grades about 16% TiO2. Now, if you were to compare those grades with your average heavy mineral sand operation, their heavy mineral content may be of the order of 2 to 3% in situ. We're talking about significantly higher levels, almost an order of magnitude higher. So you've got that mineralisation. You've got some additional cost because it's hard rock there's mining involved, there's blasting and so on, and there's crushing and milling. And then you need to get to the port. Um, I was mentioning before, a lot of the heavy mineral sand projects are on the coast, so they're often quite close to ports. We've got a little bit of a trek into the port of Geraldton, which is one of the main mineral sand exporting ports in Western Australia. But our high grade supports this hard rock operation to produce concentrates that we'd ship to China for um, further processing and, and value recovery. So that gives you an idea of the, the scale of the operation. Um, and the, the vanadium resource we've already identified, we did a, we did a, we updated a, a definitive feasibility study last year. And we looked at making ferro vanadium from this deposit mining exclusively the central zone. We didn't consider the eastern zone, um, or at least not until the very end of the operational life. And we determined that, yes, you could put a standalone ferro-vanadium operation on this deposit, but it was a relatively high cost operation compared to some of the low cost producers out there. So what we've decided is that in order to really extract the full value from this resource, we need to be recovering titanium as well. And so that's why we've gone down this pathway of looking at the eastern zone particularly, identifying processing options for the eastern zone that will give us a whole of ore body solution for recovering value. Right, so you, you've got titanium, you've got vanadium, and say, it's moot point whether vanadium could stand on its own, especially in today's market, but have you found a way of being able to extract both those and any other byproducts in, in one solution, that, that's got to be a big driver for you in terms of understanding the economics, hasn't it? Yeah, we, we have two solutions. We have a pyrometallurgical solution and we have a hydrometallurgical solution. But, and um, 
But what, 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 which, which one? Which one are you going to end up with? I mean, what, 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 what does the DFS tell you? Are you still working on it, or do you need partners to come in and you know discuss this? We do need partners to develop the project. It's a very large project, and it's not one that our company could develop independently. But not technically. So are, are you saying to any partners coming in? Like, we understand what we need to do here, but you know, do you want to come in as a a funder and an off taker or however you structure that and I assume it's going to be Chinese from what you're what you're saying and, and, yeah. and, and your and your past track record. So you know, have you have those conversations started? We like what we've done is we've basically identified a couple of production pathways and we've gone to the market and said this is what we're capable of with this deposit. We've received a fair bit of interest from China in particular and we've actually worked with our partner up there, one of the metallurgical institutes known as IMUMR, who is looking to work with us to develop a robust metallurgical process for extracting the valuable components of the ore. Now they, under our recent agreement, are planning to put a demonstration plant in China to prove the, the processes that, we're, that we've identified as being the best way to go forward. So. We're still in developmental phase, but the objective here is to end up with a, a joint venture where we have a, a, a shareholding, they have a shareholding, and and we mine and concentrate in Australia. We ship the product to China, and it's further processed in China, and we both share in the in the value there. Right. So they they have a balance sheet which they can use. Yes, that's correct. Okay. Why build the pilot plant in in China versus Australia? If you're looking at the capital cost of investment, if you're looking not so much in respect of energy costs, but certainly in reagent costs, you can get raw materials reagents at low prices in China that make a big difference right. for the overall economics. Okay, so right, so there's a relationship that started. Is that an MOU stage? I mean, when you say you've got an agreement in place? Yes. Right, okay. Yes, we have an MOU okay. um, with IMUMR. We have the ability to work with other companies. There other companies have looked at our at our products that we've produced at pilot stage here in Australia, and we're entertaining discussions with a number of parties now. Okay, look, and I know you guys have got a lot of cash. You have about 100 million bucks of cash, so that you know you're the envy of a lot of company, you know, development companies in, in Australia and elsewhere in the world, I'm sure. But with regards to the pilot plant in China, is your partner paying for that 100% or is that a 50-50? What, what, what are the terms of this MAU say? What's your commitment, liabilities, etc.? Uh, the demonstration is plant is essentially being built at their cost. Okay. And there is a mechanism for us to recover money spent and so on on the development of a process that will take us through to commercialization. So. Um, not all the uh, I's have been dotted and T's crossed yet in respect of future joint venture arrangements, but what we're looking to do for the time being is prove the te technology, prove the commercial viability of the technology, and that's where our MOU, MOU takes us. Right. And beyond that, we'd be looking at a joint venture arrangement. Okay. The reason I wanted to speak to you was the... If I look at Matt Marion, the, the model you employed there and your, the battery recycling, which Jeremy took me through recently, this, you guys spend two, three, four, five million bucks taking it through to a point where you prove technical competence or ec economics. You bring in a strategic partner with, with capital and you retain 
or you were carried um, for a large portion of the of the project going forward. So I, I like the model. I just wondered if that is what you're trying to do here with Barambi. And and if you are, you know, what, what's that timeline look like? What what are you hoping to achieve this year, for instance? That is the model we're looking to develop here. Um, you know, we're looking for strong partners to work with. And during the course of this year, we hope to have a demonstration plant built in China. And and we've prepared raw material for processing in that demonstration plant. I think we're in the process of finalising the preparation of those materials now. So we'll be putting product on the water and shipping it to China during the course of maybe this quarter or next. I'm not sure exactly. But, um, you know, during the course of this year, we're hoping to go a fair way with the you know the, the commercial um, proving of this of this project, I suppose. And what do these partners? Is IMUMR get that right? Um, what do they need to see? I mean, they're not going to commit money to build a, a pilot plant if they didn't think they can do it. You know, that I think that's obvious to everyone. But what would they need to see at the end of the pilot test phase? What are they trying to prove? Well, what they've already seen from the piloting we've done in Australia is a project that's technically feasible and actually works. You can produce high quality products from the processes that we've adopted. What they're now looking to do is, is with the demonstration plant, uh, demonstrate this technology on a larger scale, which then gives more information about the, the commercial probabilities, I suppose. Okay, and but, but what are what are they producing? Is it a concentrate? Is it? You know. Well, you know, I, I suspect that they'll be wanting to run some um, process development in parallel. We have demonstrated a, a process whereby you take the titanium mineral and you convert it to a product known as titanium hydrolysate. Now, this is an intermediate material that's used in the sulfate process for producing TiO2 pigment. It's very pure. If a pigment plant was to buy the titanium hydrolysate, they would not need to buy ilmenite. They would not need to operate the front end of their processing plant. They could take the hydrolysate, they redissolve the hydrolysate, they rehydrolyze it, calcine it and so on and produce a finished product. So that's one option for a company that takes um, titanium hydrolysate. Um, and of course, I think they will also be looking at biometallurgical options as well, which we've already demonstrated in the laboratory with IMU. Okay, so pilot phase lasts how long? One, they've got to build it. How long does that take? Things happen in China much more rapidly than they happened here in, in Australia. And probably, you know, I imagine we'll be seeing something built within you know, the next six months or so. Okay, but the, the point is a process has started, someone else has committed their capital to take your your work to date, your tests to date, and see if they can re reproduce those at a commercial level, okay? Um, look, it's maybe, like I said, okay, maybe it's one of those things we'll, we'll come back to you on because I am genuinely yeah. fascinated by the business model you're employing and the fact that you're able to secure these, you know, quite meaningful uh, strategic financial partners um, to move projects along and I know this one's a little bit further behind um, the battery recycling component but I'd like to see what you guys do this year and I think a lot of okay, I imagine your investors and certainly people of the show you know watching this um, we'd want to see 
where are the points at which we start to understand the economics of this? So you, I know you've got a DFS to a point, but you're going to now have to produce some numbers and share some numbers with the market as to what you think this yes. thing could be, because 280 million tons is is big. That's a lot. Yes, it is a big. It's a big, long life project, and I think that's part of the appeal for some of the people we're talking to in China. Right. Okay. Well, look, Paul. Look, th thanks for that run through and. Um, I do appreciate you making the time to kind of help us understand the titanium space and the market and the supply demand. It's not something we know too much about, but we will definitely be following with very keen interest going forward. Thank you. Brilliant. Oh, well, I hope that the discussion has been of interest to your, to your viewers and uh, certainly happy to address any queries you may have going forward. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed the interview, why not subscribe to Cruxcast? or our website, cruxinvestor.com, and of course our YouTube channel, Crux Investor. Plus you can catch us most days on Twitter and LinkedIn. We really love getting your feedback, so please keep it coming, and we'll speak to you again soon.